Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Buffer zone between the mother and the baby, the placenta. And the, the placenta, of course, is the baby's lifeline. It's absolutely crucial for all the oxygen and nutrients that the baby gets right to the end of pregnancy. And the immune system is very important in allocating the resources so that both the mother and the baby survive and the baby develops normally during pregnancy. So why did I start working on the immune system here? Well, this question was really um, rose from Peter Medua, who during the war was actually detailed to go and work out why skin grafts were rejected because of all the burns patients in the war. And he um, worked out the laws of transplantation. And it was him who uh, realized that immune cells here have receptors that recognize labels on cells. And if we, of course, ignore our own cells, but they recognize labels on cells of other individuals, and this will result in rejection. And he said, then, the baby must be also like a transplant. It's nature's transplant because the baby is coming, half of its genes are coming from another individual, the father. And yet it's not rejected. And so that maybe the mother is immunosuppressed to prevent this. Now, this idea has become very firmly embedded, uh, but it's actually wrong. So I just want to start on a negative note and dismiss that idea. Of course, the immune system is quite stressed during pregnancy, as we see from women who have, say, flu. But what I want to talk about, I'm not going to talk about that at all, I just want to talk about what happens here in the uterus uh, to the immune system and this no-man's land. Now, at some point in your life, you have all adopted this position, and it's probably one of the most dangerous positions you've ever been in. And the reason uh, for that is that uh, I'll come into, but... Of course, now in UK, because of modern obstetrics, we don't see much maternal death. But if you look at the maternal mortality rates across the world, and these are figures per 100,000. So in the UK, there's under 10. But across sub-Saharan Africa, you see this huge belt across sub-Saharan Africa, the figures are 600 or higher. And I don't think there's any other measurement which is so disparate between uh, 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 this part of the world and um, the UK. So why are these women dying? And we know that they're dying partly because of access to caesarean section. And it's clear now that the optimum caesarean section rate is about 20%, so one in five pregnancies should have a caesarean section to avoid death of the mother or the baby. There's a very nice experiment done for us to show this by a uh, religious group in Indiana in the 70s who refused completely all orthodox medical care in childbirth. And they, they just delivered at home with relatives. And the maternal mortality rate for Indiana as a whole was just like the UK, under 10. But for this religious group, it was almost 900, 100 times higher. And that actually is close to the rate historically in England in the 18th century. So what are, these, uh, uh, what are the major causes of death in childbirth? And there are four, really, these four, preeclampsia, obstructed labor, 
hemorrhage and infection. And it's the top two that really tell us about the, what the immune system is doing. And I'm going to focus on those two. And to do this, we need to actually think about birth weight. And this is the uh, frequency of babies born and uh, their birth weight here. And you can see that most babies are born between three and four kilograms, which is about six and a half, eight and a half pounds, for those of you still in pounds. Um, and if we add on to this the mortality, and this could be either the mothers or the babies, actually, you can see quite clearly that the deaths occurring at the two extremes of birth weight, most deaths are occurring at the two extremes. And this is where we see at one end of this obstructed labor, the baby is too big to get out, basically. And at the other end is where we see preeclampsia. And so the mother will die of preeclampsia, and the baby will die because it's too small, can't suck, very prone to infections. And uh, it may even die in utero, in the uterus, because of lack of oxygen, and that is what a stillbirth is. And at the other end, we see that the obstructed labor, the baby may die because of uh, birth asphyxia and trauma. And the mother uh, will have, is at great risk of a postpartum hemorrhage and rupture of the uterus because of this uterus trying to push this baby out. And it's basically too big to get out. And of course, so this is just deaths. But the, more, the actual effects long-term, if mothers or babies survive, are very profound as well. And uh, fistulas is a very tragic long-term effect of obstructed labor, where the woman leaks urine all the time and is completely ostracized by um, society. So I don't know how many of you uh, had a cesarean section, but everybody else has, been, has done this and put their head through here. And of course, we have these overlapping skull bones that allow the baby to get through this very difficult area here, just coming in to the pelvis. And that's where they get stuck. And if they do get out, we see this problem of fistulas. And this, again, is a very striking map showing that sub-Saharan Africa is particularly bad for obstructed labor. And these are the numbers of fistula operations done across the world. So this is at the top, at the, when the baby's at the top end. And if you look now at the bottom end, and preeclampsia. Now, what is preeclampsia? So preeclampsia means the symptoms before you get eclampsia. And this is a poster from the hospital in um, Kampala, where um, I work. And you can see very dramatically what eclampsia is. It's a bolt from the blue, a flash of lightning, and the mother has a, basically has a fit. And then she will go into a coma, and the mortality rate is very high. And so how, what, what, what actually is going on here? So let me tell you about a little bit more about preeclampsia. It's a very fascinating disease, and it has a very high mortality rate. And it's been very, very understudied, and it's still very enigmatic. And I think it's because it's a disease primarily of young women. It only occurs in pregnancy, and it particularly occurs in first pregnancies. And I think it's been ignored because of that. People shrug their shoulders and say, it's preeclampsia, we don't know anything about it, and that's that. 
it's especially, in, in the UK, it's 5% of first pregnancies, so it's not uncommon, but it's, we think it's much commoner in Africa, although actually there's no data, which is uh, uh, very poor. But if, but if we look at Africans in London, they have a much higher rate. Now, interestingly, we know that the placenta is absolutely essential for the development of this disease. You don't need a fetus, but there are these weird conditions where you only get a placenta. And the other thing that's just emerging, which is very interesting about preeclampsia, is that surrogate mothers who have an egg donated from another woman, so this is another non-self, if you like, to the mother, have uh, a risk of about one in four of preeclampsia. It may even be higher. And uh, it also is a disease that only occurs in humans. Now, not many diseases are not just in humans. So this is, again, very unique about it. So the, what, hap what happens? What goes wrong? Well, the cause is defective placentation, but that's a kind of, what does that mean? Let me, let me explain what it means. And we have to go back to here and look at this buffer zone here, this no man's land. And the first thing we need to establish is, where is the boundary between the mother and the baby? And is it here or is it here? In other words, is the placenta made by the mother or is the placenta made by the baby? And I'm sure all of you actually know this, but it, uh, it, it, in our questionnaires, a lot of people didn't, so I just thought it was an interesting, interesting uh, problem. And actually, the placenta is made by the baby. And so the boundary is here. So this is the boundary between these two individuals, this red line here. And really, the uterus, you can see, is just really a bag of muscle. Its, own, its really main role is to get this thing out. And uh, so here's the boundary. And... If you look at, uh, this is a very early embryo bouncing down into the uterus and it's landing here and implanting into the uterus, and this is by about day 10, you can see the first thing that that baby does is build its own placenta. And it's got to do that to access all the nutrients and oxygen it needs. And so for the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, it's devoted really to building its placenta. And it doesn't really get around to growing itself the second half of pregnancy. You notice also from this slide that the placenta is always the buffer between the mother and the baby. The mother is never in direct contact with the baby. It's always this placental barrier is here. But of course, it is made by the baby, so it has got half its genetic component from the father. So what goes wrong in preeclampsia? So if we look in this uh, box here, where there's placenta, the uterine lining here, called decidua, and the muscle uh, coat of the uterus, you can see the muscle wall. In this uh, area here, the placenta drives into the uterus, and it drives in to tap into the uterine blood supply, the mother's arteries, to access the nutrients. So the baby is not only just building its placenta, it's actually driving in to the mother's arteries to get its own blood supply and nutrients that it needs. And uh, so, if we, so I just look, in, just go back. If you just look in this box here, so placenta, lining, and muscle coat, you can see here placenta, the lining, and the muscle coat here. 
here's these cells from the placenta invade in, and they don't go in randomly. They move towards the arteries. They get to the arteries, and they completely destroy and replace the wall of the artery, both inside and out, so that the actual mother's arteries are lined by baby cells. It's a very, very remarkable process, and it's been very, very understudied. And this effect of this is absolutely essential because it opens up this artery so that it will carry blood right till the end of pregnancy at high flow, but low conduct uh, high conductance, but at low pressure. So there's very high blood flow, but it's got a, a low pressure because you don't want a high pressure going into the placenta because it's a very delicate structure. You could just blow it out, actually, if it came in at high pressure. And, of course, it stops here. It just stops at the inner layer of the muscle. It doesn't go any further. But in preeclampsia, it doesn't go far enough. So it stops too early. As a result, the arteries are not opened up, and you can see the blood flow will be okay at the beginning of pregnancy, and then there'll become a moment when the baby has got bigger and the demand outwits the supply that can come through those arteries. And then the mother starts getting the problems of preeclampsia. So the question is really, what makes it stop? And why does it stop too early? So how do we define this boundary here between the, the placental cells, which are babies, and the mother? Now, I said this is a human disease, so we, we don't have animal models like you have for most diseases. And we have to, therefore, look at pathology. And uh, there is a condition where you get the placenta going, invading too far. And in this condition, uh, oh, sorry, I have said that really now, let's move on. In this condition, you can see that the placenta's gone right through these ridiculous names it has here, and the clue is that there is no lining of the uterus here. So the, an example of when this happens is if a woman has had a previous uh, caesarean section and the next pregnancy lands on that scar randomly and then it will just go straight through. So this tells us that this lining here is crucial in regulating the invasion of going too far, too little or just right, which is what we want. So I will just quickly go back, actually, just, just to recap this. So what actually happens is so we have this reduced blood supply to the center. So the baby develops, doesn't develop normally. So the, in the baby, you can get very small babies not haven't grown properly, the risk of stillbirth and prematurity. And in the mother, this placenta is stressed, and it triggers this dreadful... Uh, a disorder which can then result in eclampsia and a fit. So the question is, how is this regulated? And the um, idea that we had was that it was the immune system that was doing this. And this was really because this, these, this is where these two individuals, the mother and the baby, are in direct contact in the wall of the uterus here. And we know, as I told you, that Peter Medawar had you know, re recognized that immune cells can see labels on the cells from another individual. So 
the obvious thing was to ask what kind of immune cells are here when this thing's coming in of the, in the, of the mother, in this lining. And uh, here is a picture of them. Here's the placenta here, here's the boundary. And you can see there's very, very abundant cells here, which are called uterine natural killer cells. And when I was thinking about this problem was when I was uh, quite, a, quite a while ago, I, I used to be a pathologist, and I was in a department in Cambridge which was populated by the sort of alpha male doctor, which I really hope that has now disappeared. But I was probably very difficult, and, um, with the, and I was banished to the maternity um, hospital to do the reproductive pathology, because I was such a nuisance, I think. And, uh, it, of course, then I had to sit and look at all these placentas and, and uteruses, and, and eventually I realized that... And I got very interested in preeclampsia because a great friend had just died of it, actually. And... Uh, I suddenly realized that there were immune cells in the uterus that I'd never seen in any other organ, because by that time I'd been a pathologist looking at everything, and that these were only in women, and they were only there when the placenta was established. And so we call these cells natural killer cells because they are sort of a first cousin of a cell in the blood called natural killer cell. It's been its, been its appalling name. It's really stupid to do that because they don't kill and they certainly don't kill the baby. But that, unfortunately, has become rather an embedded idea, too. So here they are, uh, and this is, this is the mother's immune NK cells in direct contact with the placenta. This is here. These big pink ones here are the placental cells coming in. So the next thing we had to do was immune cells work by recognizing something and then they do something. And we've seen in transplantation, they recognize a label from another individual that's different than your own labels, and they reject it. But the key thing in uh, um, pregnancy is, of course, I've told you, this is a compromise between the mother and the baby. Rejection does not occur in this way. So that's one very important difference here. And another... Um, obvious difference is that the placental cells actually have, a, they do have a maternal self-label because half the baby is self, belongs to the mother. But they also have the father's label. And this is where the fathers come in. You cannot escape, you men. You have a responsibility for preeclampsia. And, uh, here, and this, these labels here are on the placental cells. So this is a very different situation. And uh, now we've worked it out, it's obvious that it's quite a unique immune interaction that only occurs here as the baby comes in to the uterus. So, I've all, it's obvious that, from what uh, Medora said, that these labels are highly different between different individuals. And that's why we need tissue typing when we do organ graphs, to try and match so you have a graph from somebody whose label is like yours. And, uh, of course, we don't go around matching fathers, do we? So the, how, how does this work? But uh, the, um, So these are very, very different, and they're much more different than most of the genes that you think are responsible for differences between individuals, like colours of eyes or colours of hair. They are very, very different. Probably most of you in this room will be different for these labels. But it turned out, when we looked at this more closely, 
that the mothers, uterine NK cells, the receptors that recognize these placental labels are also very different. So all the women in this room will have inherited different receptors. So what that means is that you have women with a variety of receptors and the baby's placental cells with a variety of labels from the father. And you can have all sorts of different combinations of these in pregnancy. And so let me illustrate this. So here, here we can just show a population of women with these different uh, receptors. But we can now broadly classify them into these three groups, which I've called AAA, B, and BB. And if we look at the, what the father is giving to the baby, we can have lots of differences. But again, we can very simply divide them into two groups. C1 and C2. And then we can ask, do different combinations of these uh, maternal receptors and baby's labels, uh, 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 do, are they seen at these different ends of pregnancy, which are the risky ones, compared with the ones in the middle? And so we looked at uh, ooh, over 1,000 pregnancies and a lot of women with preeclampsia separately, so about 800 women with preeclampsia and women with very big babies. And we looked at these different combinations, and this is what we found. So if you have a mother who has this receptor and the baby, uh, the father is giving this to the baby, you're going to have a birth weight roughly in the middle. So that's good. But if this same mother happens to have this father, uh, uh, father's labels on the baby, there is a risk of preeclampsia. This is only an association. It's not a hard and fast rule. Again, this same father with a different mother, we find the complete opposite. There's a risk of a very big baby. So what this uh, 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 means is that... Sorry, just go. What this means is that... Uh, the immune system is trying to keep this birth weight between these extremes by these great variety of receptors and labels in the population. Now, this is only an association. It's not going to be useful clinically yet because this is still very much a research, under research. But there is one situation which is very interesting, which might be quite useful uh, um, uh, quite soon. And I told you that surrogacy the risk of preeclampsia is one in three or one in four, very, very high for these uh, surrogate mothers. And you can see why this might be now, is because the placenta will have no self-labels from that mother, absolutely, because the egg is a different, will have a different non-self-label here, and of course the other non-self-label from the father. So this, uh, it's got twice the chance of having, if you like, a risky label, and this, uh, we might be able, I think, to type, uh, a tissue type, these uh, women to avoid uh, the, the putting in uh, uh, embryos that are really going to be very risky. And uh, so that, that, I think, is a stage we are, we, we, we need to get far better refinement of this genetics to actually predict in much more accurately, because at the moment, this is, there is no predict, way of predicting whether somebody has preeclampsia. There's no way of preventing it, and there's no way of treating it except to remove the placenta, which usually means cesarean section. Now, this seems a pretty bad situation for humans to have got themselves in. 
to have ended up having now one in five pregnancies to have cesarean section to avoid maternal or uh, uh, neonatal mortality. And of course, without cesarean section, before we had cesarean sections, there was this enormous uh, death of mothers and babies. So how has this situation arisen? And I think the other thing that Peter Medora did not point out about pregnancy was that it is the only natural situation when two individuals coexist, the mother and the baby, because this has evolved since placental mammals evolved over millions and millions of years. Transplantation is completely artificial. We, uh, animals don't go around sticking kidneys into each other. So this, we have to really look at how this has arisen in terms of evolution. And the best, uh, our, our more immediate ancestors are primates. And primates do have placentas quite like humans. You're probably aware that placentas in most ruminants and ungulates are completely different than humans. So we have to look at primates. So this is actually, I might have to point this out to you, this is actually a monkey giving birth. So here is the head coming out here. And the head in a monkey comes out with the face facing the mother like that. And so the mother can pull the baby out. As soon as the head's out, she can pull the baby out. She can clear the airway, bite the cord, eat the placenta, jump up up a tree, and it's all over in an hour. It's all, it's all over in an hour. And so why have we now ended up with these labors going on for one or two days? And the reasons are two. This is the first reason, is that about four million years ago, humans got upright and walked. And of course, there are great advantages in walking because you have your hands free to carry weapons or the baby, and you don't not expose the heat of the sun all day, and you can walk and uh, all day as well. So there are a lot of advantages being upright. But it does have this very, very major effect on the anatomy of the pelvis. And the pelvis has got a much, much smaller. It couldn't be any wider, or we, wouldn't, we would waddle as we walked. And, but it is actually, of course, wider in women. Uh, and women don't run as fast as men because of that. Uh, so that was the first thing that happened, but that was fine actually for you know a couple of million years or so. But it's only really in the last 500,000 years that this has become a major problem, and that's because of our great brains, which here are, are here in the last 500,000 years from Australopithecus and Neanderthals. Of course, had a big brain, but they had a very big pelvis, actually enormous pelvis. So this has resulted in this. So here you can see the pelvis, the size of the pelvis here, and here's the baby's head here in orangutan chimpanzee. These are apes, in the apes, our really closest relatives. And look at this tight fit that humans have to get this head through this pelvis. So human uh, birth is really a trade-off between being able to be upright and walk and the size of the pelvis and like, this massive brain, which is clearly a huge advantage. So we are now really trapped in our own anatomy by this. Um, and so uh, what has to happen now in humans is, of course, that the head comes in sideways and the, uh, it turns round as it moves through the pelvis. It can only get in through the pelvis, usually sideways, turns round, and you end up with the face facing away from the mother generally, 
The mother cannot, therefore, help the baby out or she'd pull the baby's head off. And this has meant that most human societies have always been societies with women, usually older women, who help during childbirth. This has actually probably had a very important cultural impact on humans and social impact as well. The other, of course, effect is that compared with all other primates, we're born incredibly helpless. All we can do is scream and suck. And uh, that has necessitated long-term parental care because the brain continues to develop so much after birth in humans. So what can we do about this? And, um, of course, I'm just an academic, so I can't do very much, but I've had the great um, privilege of of working with an obstetrician from Africa who approached me with this major problem of preeclampsia in Africa and said, this cannot be right, what is going wrong here? And she's a very remarkable woman because she came and actually uh, typed a whole... She, first of all, she collected all the pregnancies with preeclampsia in Africa in an African hospital, which is a formidable challenge. And then she came and she looked at all the genes uh, in these women with African pregnancies. And, it's, it's actually, as you predict, it's exactly like it is in, in the UK. But there was one thing that she po uh, spotted, pointed out, uh, which is this, that uh, these C2 labels are actually the ones that are, seem to be very risky and in, d d donated by the father. And you can see this is a heat map of the world and the frequency of these genes across the world. And what you see is that as you move out of Africa, the frequency of this drops very, very clearly uh, here. These are actually native um, Australians, not uh, um, uh, European Australians here. And uh, this, why should this be? Why is it kept so high still in Africa if that is dangerous? And of course, these are immune system genes. They are doing two things. They're Darwinian genes, really, because they are uh, helping us reproduce successfully and defending us against infection. They do both these important genes. And probably it's kept so high in Africa, this, because of there's a pathogen there, which this is very good for, this C2. Maybe it's malaria. I mean, we don't know that yet. That's, that's something we have to look at. But what is interesting as we move out is we also know that uh, in the UK, the C1 gene we have, the opposite to this, is actually a Neanderthal gene. So, of course, Europeans have picked up genes from Neanderthals during this migration out of Africa, and some of those have probably been beneficial for reproduction. So, I'll uh, just end saying that we are now uh, uh, between uh, uh, Annette Nakimuli and, uh, and Cambridge, we are trying uh, to set up a maternal health research centre which is linking Cambridge uh, to. Um, as part of the wider Cambridge Africa program, uh, to uh, uh, look at all these problems in uh, African pregnancies. And infection is another uh, major issue, and this has been uh, funded by uh, the Wellcome Trust. So thank you very much, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Yeah. Why do you have to? Um, why do you ex 
why do you think that um, second pregnancies and further on are less likely to get preeclampsia? Very good question. <laughs> and we don't know. I mean, th th this is, again, mo many, many things about preeclampsia we don't know. And there's a, that, but that is the, the, the question is extremely good because it could just be an anatomical reason that once the uterus has been sort of pregnant once, it's better at doing it the second time. It could just be that. Uh, but, it, but we now know, actually, that these NK cells, not in the blood, but, uh, not in the uterus, but in the blood, do have some kind of memory. I mean, it's not like the memory that the immune cells have chickenpox or viruses that is lifelong. They have some kind of rather weedy memory. But it may be that there is some memory for that father. And the reason I say that is because the second pregnancy is not protected if you change the partner. You stick to the devil you know, actually. <laughs> in pregnancy. <laughs> Yes, yeah, no, I, yeah, I think that, that, again, is a very good point because we, uh, I mean, as you probably know, you know, eclampsia can just come out of the blue, completely out of the blue. You need not have any of the symptoms uh, beforehand. So, and at the moment, it's quite amazing to me in the 21st century that all you do to look at preeclampsia is stand a woman on a weighing scale, measure her blood pressure, and look for protein in the urine. That is the only thing. And yet we have all these other high sophisticated <laughs> tests for... And of course, in Africa, it's a much more of a problem because women are far further away from anywhere that they can get actual um, access to cesarean section. So there are now uh, um, uh, ways to try and help this. I mean, we have these blood pressure devices that what, what we're thinking of trying to do in, in Africa is actually link these blood pressure devices, which are very low cost, low tech, to a GPS thing. And you actually just send somebody out when you see the blood pressure has gone up. It's, it's Wi-Fi connected and and GP, and you, do, and you don't wait for the woman to respond, you just send somebody out. But I think in the long term, what we might be able to do from these genes is actually say which women are going to be potentially at risk, they may not, they may not, and get them near a healthcare unit earlier. So we actually say, you do need to be near, you might need help, you may not, but you might. No, <laughs> women aren't giving a fair deal about this, that's for sure. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, there's somebody the microphone behind you. Sorry. Um, um, a, f a few. 
A, a few questions, really. There was a recent case of a gorilla having preeclampsia. Does that tell you anything? And the prevalence of preeclampsia around the world. Do you, know, do you know anything about the prevalence where there's an African father but a non-African mother or vice versa? And it, yeah. it's interesting, the high rate in Australia, which is yeah. geographically quite far away yes. from Africa, yes. and you would think different pathogens, yeah. but the so, yeah. people are also yeah. very dark-skinned yeah. compared to other, yeah. as well as Africa. Is there a link there? So, um, the... Um, sorry, I've forgotten the first question already. What was the first... Oh, the gorilla. Yes, now, um, there have been reports of gorillas and chimpanzees uh, uh, having preeclampsia, but actually, if you have a pathology, if, if they die and you do, and the pathologist does a post-mortem, they've generally got something else like renal disease, and it's not real preeclampsia. And I think I did actually talk to the man who runs the chimpanzee, used to run the chimpanzee uh, research centre in the Netherlands, when they documented huge numbers of births. He said, we'd never seen it. In, in, so I, I think it, if it does occur, it's extremely rare in, in, in any other species than humans. Um, the, uh, there isn't any data about uh, um, uh, preeclampsia in Africans at the day, uh, on the prevalence. Just, there's no country in Africa which has records of all the births and what happens in sub-Saharan Africa. So we, we don't know that. And I think the, the question of... of of uh, mixed ethnicity um, uh, pregnancies, we again we've no idea. But again, it's a very good question. Yeah, I've no idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you've you've mentioned these different types of men with different genes and, and not matching, and, and the cut came in that graph at the low end. Where could there be any link with this typing? and pregnancies that never actually succeed, early miscarriages. Because we, yeah. we, that's another area we know nothing about, why some women yeah. continually miscarry. Yeah, again, a very good question. So I, I, the link between infertility, primary infertility, recurrent miscarriage, which is miscarriage more than three times, and preeclampsia, growth restriction stillbirth, is, is close. This is, this is a spectrum of disorders. So, and we don't really understand. We have done a small study on women with recurrent miscarriage, and they show the same thing. So, uh, uh, again, that is a difficult because uh, uh, miscarriage clinics, of, private miscarriage, uh, IVF clinics have started picking this up and saying, I want to be typed. And this is not ready yet to, get to go into the um, clinic. But I think in the future, it, and I mean, I don't know, see, see what the audience think, but uh, that it... It is possible that some women, you know, some women have 10, more than 10 miscarriages, might accept to have a sperm donor from a different sperm. Uh, and, and so that might be possible in the future, uh, I, I think. Yeah. Hello. I, I find your talk really fascinating. I've done a lot of work with parents where the parents have separated uh, and the one parent, usually the mum, isn't letting the dad see the child. And... In about a third of these cases, uh, mum is quite clearly not a well lady. And uh, we now know that there's been work done by Ian Jones in Cardiff University that you have a very high link between preeclampsia and postnatal psychosis. Uh, are we doing anything to try and monitor these mums? Because 
in nearly all these cases, it's really heartbreaking because dad still desperately loves mum but uh, and mum is rejecting dad. And maybe it's because right down very back in the, there's this receptor mm. level, dad wasn't good for her. Mm. But it's really something that we need to be sort of working on to try and help keep these families together. Mm. Do you know if we've, we're I, making I advances? don't know anything about that, that link, I'm afraid. No, not Thank at all. You. I was just wondering if there was any effect between maternal stress prior to even conception that might possibly have an influence on the baby developing that uh, linking in and, and causing those cells to be able yeah. to be the integrity of the cells to remain during the... It's quite possible because, of course, the uterine lining is, is, is very remarkable because it cycles every month. So it, the whole thing is dis shed and then you start again. And, then it, and, it, and that is a, under very tight hormonal control of the hypothalamus and the pituitary and then the ovary and then the uterus and then there's a big feedback loop. And that all has to work like clockwork for the whole thing to work, to be every month cycling correctly. And we know that that can be disturbed by lots of things, particularly stress in the hypothalamus, so, and also uh, women who are anorexic, again, they, because they stop menstruating, obesity, uh, again, so, uh, uh, and all those are linked with di uh, uh, disorders of pregnancy, yes. So that, and it's, but we, what we don't understand is, what is a normal endometrium? What actually should it be like to be normal because we've got no really way of, 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 of saying that. It's changing every day, so it's very difficult to see. So that's, again, the endometrium has been completely ignored. I mean, the uterus has been completely ignored. When I talk to male immunologists, some of them have really got no idea where the placenta is at all or which way. I mean, it's, it's just amazing the ignorance about, about that. So I think that this has been an extremely understudied area, which... Uh, and, and it's actually still underfunded, underfunded. So the MRC, Medical Research Council in, in the UK, gives only 3% of its funding to reproductive health. And you, when you think about this, you know, f affecting 50% of the population, this is very shocking, actually. Yep. More questions? And obviously this is really early on in your sort of research. It's kind of looking at the links between the different sort of types of receptors and so on. But what do you think in the future the sort of ethical and clinical implications would be of that? I know you said you don't want to really comment much on it, but do you think it might lead to genetic testing and, you know, sort of finding the perfect match of the matches that are at risk? Or well, I certainly hope not. <laughs> I think yeah, that would be a great mistake. But, and I... I but I do hope that we would actually have a chance of picking up the, the really uh, pregnancies are really going to go badly so we can actually intervene um, much earlier to avoid, particularly in places where there's no access to good obstetric care. I mean, I think we've probably forgotten in this country, it's a little bit like vaccines. You know, people have forgotten what polio and measles were like. People have forgotten how bad it was before we had good obstetrics. And we need to remind people that actually that we are very lucky that we do have access to very good obstetrics now. I think it, that brings it home to you when you work in Africa. It really, really does. 
Yeah. So I think it's got time for one more question. If there are no more questions. Oh. I just want to ask, um, have you got a website or can we get more information about all this somewhere? <laughs> have you not written a book? Uh, uh, no. I write a book. No, I'm sort of aware. No, no, sorry. I, I'm kind of aware I should, but um, and uh, um, I see that Dan Davis is sitting here, but who has written a book about this actually? And so uh, maybe you need to read his book. It's called The Compatibility Gene, and there is a chapter in there about um, reproduction uh, uh, and how these genes regulate reproduction. But the book is 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 not really about. Most of the book is not really. About, it's a very good book. It's a very good book, but it's not. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not mainly about pregnancy, but it has a whole chapter on on, on this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think we are out of time. So thank you very much. Mm.